Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on Sunday, January 20th, 2019, on the basis of John 2, verses 1 through 11. I don't know if you were fully aware of this, but the skin tissue located in your face has more blood vessels and more capillaries than the skin in other parts of your body. For that matter, the blood vessels are actually wider and they are closer to the surface, which means that their visibility is less diminished by the rest of your skin tissue. Did you realize that? Isn't that interesting? I'm guessing you didn't really know any of that, but I'm guessing that you are fully aware of the effects of all of that. That when you feel a little bit ashamed or embarrassed, when something isn't right, when something is out of place, there's sort of this involuntary and uncontrollable signal that your body gives to let everybody around you know how you are feeling. Your face turns a bright beet red. You blush. The reason I bring up blushing this morning is because I think at times we have a tendency to view Christianity, or we have a tendency to view life with Jesus as sort of this very dry, sterile, maybe even boring sort of thing. In fact, we might be tempted to think that all of the things that would bring us joy and fun and pleasure in life, that in our life with Jesus, all of those things are sort of off limits. I think we have our Puritan roots for Christianity in America to sort of thank for that. For a long time, and even still in parts of America, there are certain things that for Christians are just off limits. Things like playing cards, things like drinking alcohol, things like dancing. After all, I'm sure you've heard the old expression, right? That dancing is just a vertical expression of a horizontal desire, right? In fact, we probably have our Puritan roots to thank for that as well, to thank for our view of sex. That sometimes we would view sex as kind of this, this dirty, off-limits sort of thing, or maybe even just a necessary evil so that the human race can keep going for a few more generations, instead of viewing it as the wonderful gift that God intended to be enjoyed and to be celebrated between a husband and a wife. We might be tempted to think that our pursuit of God and our pursuit of heaven and our pursuit of fun and our pursuit of enjoyment are two different, if not two mutually exclusive, paths in our life. And if that's the case, then I'm glad that we have in front of us this morning these verses from John chapter 2. Shortly after Jesus was baptized, which again was sort of the, the big coming out party, the big debut for his public ministry, his life as a public figure, shortly after that, in these verses, John tells us about Jesus' first miracle. And as odd as it sounds, the very first time Jesus used his power, his divine power, to do something supernatural, it wasn't to feed a bunch of hungry people. It wasn't to make a bunch of sick people well. It wasn't to solve a problem. No, Jesus used that divine power to make sure that a group of people could keep partying. And John tells us very specifically, a very specific word for this miracle, he calls it a sign. In other words, with this miracle, Jesus wants to communicate something to us. Jesus wants to send a signal of his own. And that signal is simply this, that if we think Christianity, if we think life with Jesus is this dull, dry, sterile, boring sort of thing, when we find out what it really is like, we might be so surprised that it might even make our face turn a beet bright red. In fact, I feel the need to warn you, if that hasn't happened to you already, at some point in the sermon, it just might. That as we look at these verses from John chapter 2 this morning, we're going to see that Jesus has the power to make you blush. 
John tells us that this first miracle was performed at a wedding. And it's important for us to realize how weddings in Jesus' day were a little bit different from weddings in our day. In Jesus' day, uh, a bride and a groom would have this very public, formal ceremony where they would speak their vows, where they would pledge their lives to one another, becoming husband and wife. But then immediately after that, the husband would go away. The husband would leave his wife. He'd go back to his house to prepare the place where the two of them would live. And it's only then, only when all the preparations were complete, that he would then come back for his wife as sort of part of this big, grand procession. He would leave his house. He would travel to the house of his bride. He would take her from her house back to his house. And all the while, the wedding attendants, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, they would be there lining the way as part of this procession. And then once they got back to the house, there would be this big, days-long party for all of their nearest and dearest family and friends. In other words, we could, we could say it as simply as this, that in Jesus' day, the wedding ceremony and the wedding reception actually happened on two separate days. They were two separate events. So what's going on here in these verses is the wedding reception. And here's where we can relate. We know what makes a wedding reception such a great, fun event, right? Starts out with the company. The bride and the groom, they get to gather together all their closest family and friends, all the people that they love most in the world. And, and as for the guests, they get the honor of knowing that they made the cut, that they got invited. <laughs> At a wedding reception, there's delicious food and drink, in fact, probably more than you could ever want, right? At a wedding reception, there's music, and yes, there's even dancing. And to be frank, one of the reasons that makes a wedding reception such a joyful thing is that that vertical expression of a horizontal desire, at least for two people in the room, is very quickly going to be more than just a horizontal desire. But in exactly the way God intended, in marriage. Quick looking around the room to see who's all blushing <laughs> at this point. A wedding reception is sort of the epitome of fun and enjoyment in this life. But unfortunately, this wedding reception was going to come to an end much sooner than intended. They were running out of wine. And so Jesus' mother, Mary, came to Jesus to let him know of this problem. And then we're sort of forced to confront Jesus' somewhat surprising response when Mary approaches him. He says, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Maybe a little bit more literally, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, woman, what shared concern do you and I have in this situation? He's saying, I know what your agenda is. I know you want me to kind of swoop in and save the day, to swoop in and make this problem go away. And so you want me to act right now. But my agenda is different. And so the time for me to act has not yet come. Certainly nothing wrong with Mary coming to Jesus with this request. In fact, she probably did exactly the right thing, exactly the thing she, could, she should have done. But there is a very important lesson for us to learn in Jesus' response. You see, as Americans, we are born and bred to believe that one of our God-given and government-protected rights is the pursuit of happiness, right? And so we naturally assume that if that's on our agenda, then, then of course it ought to be part of God's agenda for him to want us to be happy. And if we're honest with ourselves, of course, we would, we would admit that for much of life, maybe even for most of life, God does allow us to do just that, to have so many wonderful blessings to have fun with and to enjoy. But then maybe at times we get exactly the same answer that Mary got. We found out that our agenda and Jesus' agenda are just a little bit different. 
Maybe that thing that we're pursuing that is going to be fun and enjoyable, maybe it's perfectly okay, and yet for whatever reason, no matter how hard we pursue it, we can't quite achieve it. All of our best plans come to nothing. All of our best efforts fail. Maybe in other cases, that thing that we're pursuing, that thing that we're convinced will lead to fun and enjoyment is actually sinful. In fact, I've mentioned a couple of things a couple of times in this sermon where it's important to point out that God very much has a plan for how those things are to be used. When it comes to drinking alcohol, when it comes to God's gift of sex, for example, as much as those blessings can be enjoyed, those blessings can be abused. And so maybe we are pursuing something that is forbidden by God. And maybe this is why we're tempted to think that that life with Jesus is sort of this dry, sterile, boring thing that his agenda is so often different from our agenda that it, as much as we would want him to, so often he doesn't just swoop right in and save the day, swoop right in and make all of our problems go away. That's why it's so good for us to have these verses in front of us today because these verses don't just show us what isn't on Jesus' agenda. They also remind us what is. And John shows us what's on Jesus' agenda at this wedding right from the very start. He introduces this entire account by saying, On the third day, a wedding took place. Kind of a weird way to start out a story, right? It almost begs us to ask, On the third day, from what? What happened three days prior to this? And so John wants us to read this event in light of what had just happened three days prior. And what had just happened three days prior is that Jesus had called, Jesus had gathered his first four full-time disciples to leave everything behind and follow him. And when he did, Jesus also made them a promise. He said, You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, Jesus is saying that he himself, the Son of Man, is the bridge between heaven and earth. And Jesus was saying to his disciples that one day they would see him ascend back up into heaven. You know, sort of like a groom leaves his bride to prepare the place where the two of them will live. But then these same disciples would also see Jesus one day descend back to earth. You know, sort of the way a groom comes back for his bride to take her to be with him in that home he has prepared. And Jesus says that all the while, his own personal bridal party, his wedding attendants, the angels, would be lining that processional route. Jesus is using the language of Jewish wedding customs to let his disciples know what he was going to do for them. That he had prepared for them an eternal and heavenly wedding reception. And so Jesus wanted those disciples to know that his agenda for them was not less than the agenda that they had. It was actually much more. And what Jesus was going to do, it was not worse than what Mary wanted him to do. It was so much better. It's important for us to remember that lesson because I think more and more we are finding out that the things we think will make us happy, the things that we think will make life fun and enjoyable aren't living up to our expectations. This week I had the, the opportunity to review a little bit of demographic information about the community in which we live. Did you know that here in Mount Horeb, the average annual household income is over $80,000 and that the poverty and unemployment rate are both under 2%. The average home in Mount Horeb costs somewhere between $200,000 and $400,000 and 80% of those homes, believe it or not, have both a mom and a dad 
to tuck the kids in at night. When asked to rank their biggest life concerns, the two that people put at the top of the list more often than anything else were saving up enough for retirement and losing weight. Not exactly major life crises, I think you'd agree. I think you'd agree that that a lot of people, not that there aren't problems, of course, not that there aren't people struggling, but that a lot of people have it pretty good. And yet I also happened to notice last week as I was getting a drink at the middle school where I play basketball two mornings a week that right there above the drinking fountain there was a sign advertising about half a dozen different phone numbers that middle schoolers could call if they or someone they knew was going through any number of major, major life crises, including thinking about taking their own life. Now, far from that being a a criticism of anyone or anything here about our community, I think it is evidence that more and more, not just here, but everywhere, people are finding out that the things that we think will make us happy, the things that we think will give us satisfaction and enjoyment in life, just won't. That even when it can almost be said that a a group of people has it all, that there's something still missing. That the only things that can really fill to the brim the desires of our heart are things that are found elsewhere, things found in heaven. In fact, I think it's evidence that as we've been talking about in this series, we are far from home. And so it's good for us to remember what is on Jesus' agenda. It's not less than what ours often is, it's more. It's not worse, it's better. He wants, us to, he wants to take us to an eternal wedding reception in heaven where all of our senses are delighted and where all the deepest desires of our heart are satisfied. In fact, I think if we could just picture it, if we could picture the embarrassment of riches that God wants to lay at our feet, it would have the natural effect of making our faces a beet bright red. It would make us blush. So what then? Is Jesus saying that yes, heaven will be great, but in the meantime, life is going to be hard, so suck it up, buttercup? No, not at all. After Jesus gave this answer to Mary, Jesus' work had just begun. Jesus still had this miracle to perform, and again, John uses a very specific word to refer to Jesus' miracle. He calls it a sign. Jesus wants to send us a signal. He wants to, he wants to teach us something very important, and so we need to pay very careful attention to every detail of this miracle. First of all, notice where Jesus starts. He starts with six, six stone jars, and John tells us exactly why they're there. They're normally used for ceremonial washing for people to cleanse themselves of the impurity that makes them unworthy to stand before a holy God. Jesus takes those stone jars and uses them not for their purpose, but he's going to use them for his. See, when it comes to Jesus' wedding reception, the wedding guests don't need to prove their worthiness ahead of time. They don't need to clean themselves up before being invited into the banquet. No, Jesus takes care of all of that. And then notice what Jesus does. He could have just snapped his fingers and filled those jars to the brim with wine, right? But instead, he orders that they are filled with water first. Water. We know, we know how important water is, right? Water is important. Water is necessary. But water is also kind of lifeless. It's got no color. It's got no taste. It's got no smell. And so Jesus takes that water, and he uses that to turn it into wine, to something that is both delicious And as the Bible says, fills the heart with gladness. So he turns the water into wine, and then notice the quantity and the quality. 
six stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons apiece. You do the math, and Jesus made 600 to 900 bottles of wine for this party, for these people to enjoy. And it wasn't just two-buck chuck or the franzia that you get out of the box. This was better than anything that had been offered so far. Jesus, Jesus wants to delight our senses. Jesus wants to fill our heart with gladness. And all of it is free. You've got all the elements of a heavenly wedding reception breaking into this wedding reception here on earth. It's, it's a sign. It's a foretaste of what is to come. And it's a guarantee that it surely will. Well, that's nice for them. I'm sure it was a fun party after that, right? But what about, what about us? Well, believe it or not, Jesus does the very same thing for us. He does it right here and right now. Every time we walk into this room, we, the wedding guests, we don't need to worry about whether we've made it onto the list or whether we've been cut. We don't need to clean ourselves up ahead of time to make ourselves worthy to be in the Lord's presence. No, just like he did then, all of the work that is needed for sinful people to stand in the presence of a holy God, Jesus takes care of it all. And then when we come here to be with Jesus, it's not some cold dry, stale experience. Instead, all of our senses are engaged in what we see and what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, and what we touch. It's not something where we just passively sit back as spectators, but it's something that we're actively participating in with every part of our body as we stand, as we sit, as we sing and speak and pray. And it's not just a conversation with God. Or sometimes we're speaking and he's listening. Or sometimes he's speaking and we're listening. No, instead, it's a gathering where all of that conversation also takes place centered around a meal. A meal that, just as it does here on earth, brings the people who are invited and gathered around that meal as close together as humanly possible. Where Jesus gives us his own body and blood in bread and wine. Barely enough to satisfy even a little bit of hunger in our stomachs, but more than enough to satisfy our starving souls. And again, it's all free. You've got every aspect of heaven breaking into our cold, dry, boring lives here on earth with Jesus' delight, with Jesus' joy, with Jesus' goodness. If it doesn't feel like a party at times, rest assured that's our fault and not his. It's a foretaste. It's a preview of what's to come and it's a guarantee that it surely will. So friends, if we're tempted to think that life with Jesus is this boring, dull, dry experience. It's actually just the opposite. Jesus instead encounters that which is dull and dry and lifeless, and, and he fills it with every good thing. He wants to delight our senses. He wants to fill up our hearts. In fact, I needed to share with you the quotation that kind of sparked the idea for today's sermon. There was an English poet by the name of Alexander Pope, and he was writing about this miracle of Jesus changing water into wine, and he said this, The water in those jars saw its maker and blushed. Pretty good, huh? Jesus takes lifeless, colorless, tasteless water, and he turns it a bright beet red, a delicious and delightful red. And, and he wants to do the same for you. He wants to delight your senses the way that he himself created them to be delighted. He wants to fill your heart the way he himself created it to be filled. Jesus has proven that in his presence, water blushes. And by this foretaste of heaven that he's given us, he also proves that one day he will do the same for you. Amen. 
Thank you for listening. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org. Thank you.